It's funny how the entire history of a nation could be changed by a single isolated incident in a small town that was as insignificant as Alton, Illinois was in 1837. Sure, the people in Alton at the time, there was nothing insignificant about the Mississippi River community. It had become important in the two decades or so of its existence. It had grown into a thriving river landing, outshining towns like St. Louis, which had been around much longer and didn't have the kind of baggage that Alton did. I mean, this was a town that had been started by a con artist who was selling building plots that he didn't even own to people who first settled there. But Alton wouldn't stay insignificant to the rest of the country for long. Not after the night of November 7th, when a mob of nearly 200 men with torches surrounded a warehouse on the edge of the Mississippi River. The warehouse held the printing press of an abolitionist newspaper that was published by a troublemaker who had been stirring people up about slavery for several years now. He'd even been driven out of Missouri because of his fanatical beliefs. Back in August, he'd been warned to stop publishing his paper, but he refused. On three occasions, angry mobs had hurled the paper's printing presses into the river. But there was no talking sense into the man. So on November 7th, those who hated him decided to stop talking. That afternoon, a boat arrived in Alton carrying the publisher's fourth printing press. It was taken to a warehouse on the riverfront so it could be guarded by a dozen well-armed men, but the day passed without incident. But what happened that night after the sun went down would blacken Alton's reputation for many years to come. All because of slavery. What the mob did that night certainly didn't settle the question of slavery in America. It just fanned the flames. The news spread quickly across the country that a newspaper publisher and abolitionist was dead on the streets of a small town in Illinois. He was not only the first American to die defending the rights of the free press, he was also the first white man to die in the fight against slavery. There was a storm coming to America. It had been a long time coming, but it took what happened on the streets of Alton to finally make the wind start to blow. Welcome to a special On the Side podcast from American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to bringing you the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of our hometown, Alton, Illinois. Yeah, we're back home again. This is episode two of an offshoot of the regular podcast, going back to our very beginning with updates and a lot of new stories from season one of the show, which delved into the mystery and history of Alton. With all the bad sound from that season, plus all the research I did with the new edition of Haunted Alton that came out last year, Cody and I wanted to revisit some old stories, offer some updates, and give you some new tales from one of the most haunted small towns in America. Depending on who you ask, and often whether they're from the North or the South, there are a variety of causes for the Civil War, from politics to money and even stubborn pride, but slavery was at the root of all of it. The first enslaved Africans were brought to the American colonies in 1619, and 
Within a few years, thousands of them were working in homes and on farms and plantations. By the time the Founding Fathers crafted the Constitution, though, slavery had been banned in the northern states. Ironically, 15 of the creators of our country were slave owners. Despite the freedoms assured for every man with the document they wrote, not one of the delegates considered the idea of ending slavery. And for decades, slavery flourished in the southern states. Their economy depended on slave labor because workers were needed to work the fields and pick cotton, the South's largest crop and most profitable export. While the South tended the fields and tied itself to slavery, the northern states continued to grow. By 1850, only about one-third of America's population lived in the South. Northerners invented the steamboat, the telegraph, the mechanical harvester, the typewriter, the lead pencil, hell, even the straw hat. While the northern states grew wealthier, the South grew poorer, which increased their demand to add more slave states to the Union. Well, the pressure to add more slave states led many in the North to begin to organize against slavery. And into the 1830s, the abolitionist movement began to grow. More and more people began to speak out openly about the injustice of slavery, and it soon became the most divisive and frightening subject in America. Laws were passed and stiffened about teaching black people to read. A gag rule was passed in Congress that banned delegates from discussing slavery on the floor. But the debate wouldn't stop. In 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico and in the aftermath added over one million square miles of territory to its borders. Almost half of this land was south of a line drawn to separate the free and slave states in 1820. Well, the South was elated. They saw the expansion of slavery to the Western territories as essential to their survival. And they began to talk of secession from the Union if their demands were not met for more land. Well, in 1850, a new compromise presented by Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky permitted California to enter the Union as a free state, while at the same time strengthening the fugitive slave laws. Federal agents were now ordered to assist in the capture of runaway enslaved people. Anyone who helped a slave escape was subject to a hefty fine and six months in jail. Well, there was an uproar on both sides concerning the tightening of the laws and the unsteady compromise that had been reached. Abolitionists openly defied the federal fugitive slave laws, which infuriated the South, further ratcheting up the tension in the country, and then things got worse. In 1854, Stephen Douglas proposed a new compromise for the western states of Kansas and Nebraska, which would allow them to choose to be free or slave states for themselves. They merely had to vote on the question to put it into law. Well, the northern states felt betrayed by this new compromise. Thousands of Northern Democrats deserted their party and formed a new political party that was based on stopping slavery from spreading any further. They were called the Republican Party and would soon be headed by Abraham Lincoln. The events that followed in Kansas were perhaps the bloodiest events leading up to the Civil War. Pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions battled it out, and over the next three months, more than 200 men would be killed in what newspapers called Bleeding Kansas. Then in 1859, an anti-slavery zealot named John Brown took over a federal armory in Harpers Ferry, Virginia, with a plan that he hoped would free and provide arms for all the enslaved people in the South. Well, the plan badly failed, and most of Brown's followers were killed. Brown himself was captured and was hanged on December 2, 1859. 
Well, disappointed the crowd gathered that day by not having any last words before the hangman's noose went around his neck, but he did hand one of the guards a note. It read, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. And he was right. Within two years, America had a new president, a man named Abraham Lincoln. The southern states were seceding from the Union, and a great civil war had begun. Many would blame the final escalation toward this bitter end on John Brown and his actions at Harper's Ferry. But Brown would never take credit for this. He claimed to be inspired by another man, one that he honestly considered a martyr to the cause of freedom. That man's name was Elijah Lovejoy, and his death in Alton, Illinois in 1837 had started the country down the long, dark road toward war. When Elijah Parrish Lovejoy moved west from Maine, he and his family settled in the city of St. Louis. Although slavery was widely practiced in Missouri and St. Louis, there were never many enslaved people in the city. Most of the enslaved people in the state could be found in the country where they worked on farms and plantations. For the most part, St. Louis saw slavery as a necessary evil and, like Abraham Lincoln, believed that it would eventually die out on its own. Even in the city's early days, the law regarded enslaved people as property, but the Catholic Church discouraged their sale. The condition of many enslaved people was eased by allowing them to hire their own time. This permitted a slave to take a job and earn money that he might use to purchase his freedom. The largest number of enslaved people at any one time in St. Louis was likely around 1,500. There was little to be gained by owning enslaved people in the city. They could sometimes be hired as dock or warehouse workers, but with no fields to tend, they were primarily used as domestic servants. St. Louis accepted the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which made Missouri a slave state, to avoid further delay in being admitted to the Union. But in the years before the Civil War, the people and politicians were not blind to the tragedy of slavery. St. Louis was increasingly aware that the question of slavery was a force that was dividing the country and Missouri was in a unique position. Although technically neutral during the Civil War, it was inhabited by both pro-South residents and by Western men for whom the Union was everything. This made for a volatile situation during and occasionally before the war began. St. Louis may have had few uses for slavery, but it had even less use for the abolitionist movement. The city had no interest in stirring up the problem and creating an issue out of something that would eventually wear itself out as slavery undoubtedly would. In the 1830s and 40s, St. Louis was busy building a city. The residents were not interested in a nation-rending crisis. There was simply too much to do. The problem of slavery, they believed, could be worked out gradually. Well, when Elijah P. Lovejoy came to St. Louis in 1827 to teach school, he was welcomed by the citizens. In the years to come, however, this fiery young man would wear out his welcome. Lovejoy, St. Louis realized, was there to stir up trouble. Lovejoy was born in the town of Albion, Maine on November 8, 1802. 
He graduated from Waterville College in 1823 and moved to St. Louis four years later. For a short time, he taught school, but soon began to make a name for himself as a writer. Surprisingly, though, a short time later, he decided to attend the Princeton Theological Seminary and become a Presbyterian minister. By 1832, he was licensed to preach, but had other things on his mind. He was likely hoping that his good standing as a minister would protect him from the fallout from his new activities. It wouldn't. Lovejoy started a new religious newspaper called the St. Louis Observer. Articles with an anti-slavery bent began appearing in the newspaper in 1834, and despite warnings from several prominent citizens, continued to appear into 1835. Hard feelings toward the abolitionist movement were strong in St. Louis. None of the moderates wanted trouble, but the slave owners had other concerns. Rumors began to spread throughout the city that abolitionists were plotting to encourage a slave rebellion in St. Louis, and free people of color began to be watched closely with both suspicion and fear. Then in October 1835, things turned worse for Lovejoy. Reports surfaced claiming that two Illinois men had helped several enslaved people from St. Louis escape across the Mississippi River. This was followed by the first threat against Lovejoy's printing press. Only a mass show of force discouraged a mob from destroying his business. In November 1835, Lovejoy picked another target in his war of words against slavery, the Catholic Church. Well, this led to another fur in the city, but Lovejoy also found himself with a surprising number of allies. Many people in the city who had no interest either way in the slavery question quickly stepped up to defend the rights of Lovejoy. As far as they were concerned, the freedom of speech and the freedom of press protected the publisher's interests in these matters. These supporters were able to curb the violence in the city, but they couldn't eliminate the opposition against Lovejoy. Editorials and speeches against him were common. Some even came from his own church. Prominent Presbyterians in St. Louis claimed he was damaging their reputation in the city and stirring up trouble where none had existed before. When February 1836, Lovejoy took his strongest position yet against slavery in a scathing editorial in The Observer, noting that anyone who owned slaves or turned a blind eye to slavery was guilty of the most grievous sins and would be condemned to damnation. Yikes. But that seemed to be Lovejoy's last word on the subject. It was like he got it all out. After that, the newspaper went quiet about slavery. This gave Lovejoy, his wife Celia, and their new son a few months of peace. In April, they traveled to Pittsburgh for a meeting of the Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. But when the Lovejoys returned to St. Louis, they found the city in the middle of a race riot. Francis McIntosh, a black cook on one of the riverboats, had intervened during a fight between two of his friends and two police officers. His friends escaped, but McIntosh was arrested for assaulting the two officers. As the men walked him to jail, he was informed he would be punished with 25 or 30 lashes. Well, rather than submit to the punishment, McIntosh decided to escape. He produced a knife and in the scuffle that followed, killed one of the policemen and wounded the other. Well, he was quickly captured and taken to jail, but a vigilante mob broke him out that night, determined to carry out their own justice. McIntosh was chained to a tree and set on fire. He begged someone to shoot him and spare him the pain, but the crowd only laughed. 
Lovejoy visited the scene the next day and found McIntosh's body still chained to the smoldering tree. His body had been pummeled with rocks and his head was missing. Lovejoy was outraged and quickly returned to his office and wrote a fiery editorial about the incident. Once the newspapers hit the streets, vandals broke into his office and badly damaged his printing press. Lovejoy realized he was finished in St. Louis. The city would no longer tolerate him and he could not subject his family to the violence he feared was coming. He sent his wife and son to her mother's home in St. Charles, Missouri and made plans to move his newspaper to Alton, Illinois. His last editorial in St. Louis was aimed at the city leaders and produced a mob of over 200 people at his office. A smaller group of about 20 men broke down the doors to the print shop and wrecked the place. Somehow, the printing press itself survived. Lovejoy moved to Alton in late July, 1836. He sent for his family with the hopes that the free state of Illinois would provide a better environment for his abolitionist work, but it wouldn't turn out that way. On Sunday, July 23rd, a steamboat delivered Lovejoy's printing press to the Alton docks, even though it was contrary to Lovejoy's explicit instructions. He was unwilling to have the press moved on the Sabbath, so it was left on the Alton Wharf until morning. Bad idea. Shortly before dawn, a group of men wrecked the press and dumped it into the river. And this would not be the last one. Lovejoy would have other presses while in Alton, but it's the story surrounding the arrival of the fourth printing press that was told, and some say relived, for years afterward. On the afternoon of November 7th, 1837, a boat arrived in Alton carrying Lovejoy's fourth printing press, and it was taken to the Godfrey Gilman and Company warehouse. The day passed without incident, but an unruly mob arrived just after sunset. Most of them were intoxicated, and they called loudly for the press to be surrendered to them. Once that demand was refused, they tried a different approach and used rocks to shatter the warehouse windows. Many in the mob were armed with rifles and pistols, and Lovejoy, or someone inside the building, fired at the crowd through one of the broken windows. Outside, a man fell, and the crowd became enraged. They stormed the building, intent on getting inside. Someone placed a ladder against the building and climbed to the roof, a burning torch in his hands. Lovejoy ran outside with a pistol and ordered the man to come down. Before he could fire his weapon, though, several men in the crowd opened fire on the editor, and he was hit five times. He fell to the ground. My God, I am shot, he cried out, and he died moments later. After he fell, the defenders inside the warehouse surrendered. The mob pushed their way inside, broke the printing press into pieces, and flung them into the Mississippi River. Lovejoy's body was left in the warehouse overnight. The next day, on what would have been his 35th birthday, a grave was hastily dug on a high bluff in the Hunterstown Cemetery, and the body, without a proper ceremony, was thrown into it and haphazardly covered up. Some years later, Lovejoy's body was exhumed and moved to a new location. Today, a fine monument stands in tribute to the fallen abolitionist, and while he's highly regarded in these less troubled times, his death was never avenged. Lovejoy's murder was widely publicized across the country, painting a picture of Alton as a savage and uncivilized place. The press was angry. Abolitionist newspapers loudly condemned the city, as did the free press, which saw the rights of the First Amendment in jeopardy. The court proceedings surrounding the affair made the city look even more corrupt. 
At a January 1838 session of the Alton Municipal Court, the grand jury brought indictments against both Lovejoy's defenders and some of the rioters. The cases later came to trial and Lovejoy's friends were acquitted of all charges. But so were the members of the mob. This was seen by outsiders and national newspapers who had watched the entire affair very closely as an official endorsement of Lovejoy's assassination. Alton was branded a lawless place, and that reputation it lingered for years. While no one was ever legally punished for the Lovejoy murder, legend had it that a curse followed many of the riot's ringleaders to their graves. One of the mob's leaders was later killed in a brawl in New Orleans. Another died in an Ohio prison. Another was killed in a freak steamboat explosion, and another was stabbed to death in St. Louis. Many of the others ended their lives in violence and disgrace, but does Lovejoy himself rest in peace? Along the banks of the Mississippi River in Alton is the place where the old warehouse once stood that provided shelter for Lovejoy's printing press. It's hard to recognize the spot these days as it's little more than a space between two large grain mills at the base of William Street. As the years had passed, the mills had replaced the warehouse and all traces of it had vanished. Or had it? For decades, local legend insisted that the Godfrey Gilman and Company warehouse was never used again after the terrible events of November 7. The place was shunned and avoided for the simple reason that it was believed to be haunted. Local dock workers and freight wagon drivers who often passed by the place at night spread tales of mysterious lights that were seen shining in the windows and of loud cries, shouts, and gunshots that would echo in the darkness. Others claimed that the terror experienced there left an impression on the area that reverberated for years. Many who visited the location claimed to feel the madness of the crowd, the desperation of Lovejoy and his friends, and the energy pulsing through the entire incident. Perhaps even more eerie were the tales of a spectral figure that would exit the side door of the building and begin to run across the front of it on the street. The figure would then stumble, clutching his hands to his chest and fall to the ground. It was believed that this figure was the ghost of Elijah Lovejoy, reliving his final moments over and over again. The legend stated that his spirit roamed the riverfront in despair for decades. However, this ghostly tale eventually ended with the destruction of the warehouse, and finally, with the proper burial of Elijah Lovejoy's missing body. Fearing reprisal and the desecration of his corpse, Lovejoy's friends and allies secretly removed his body from where he was killed and hastily buried it in the graveyard that would eventually become Alton City Cemetery, and then essentially forgot where they put it. In 1865, a former Alton resident, Thomas Dimmick, decided to track down the abolitionists' remains. He sought out William Scotch Johnson, a Scottish immigrant who was the last survivor of the group who'd secretly buried Lovejoy's remains. Johnson told Dimmick where the body had been moved and where to find it. The site was then properly marked with decorative stones and an iron fence, and soon after, Lovejoy's ghost was finally laid to rest.
After the murder of Elijah Lovejoy in 1837, Alton found itself in the middle of a mess when it came to the question of slavery. Not only did Lovejoy die there, but slavery existed right in Alton's backyard. There were enslaved people just a couple of counties away from Alton in Illinois until 1848. Illinois was, of course, a free state, but provisions had been made in the Constitution in 1819 that protected the ownership of enslaved people who were there as slaves before Illinois became, well, Illinois. Those people didn't become free until 30 years later. And there was also slavery right across the Mississippi and Missouri. And there were those in Alton who wanted to do something about that. As the debate over slavery heated up in the 1840s and 50s, a previously little-known operation called the Underground Railroad began helping more enslaved people than ever before to escape from the South and gain freedom in the North. During the years before the Civil War, Alton was known as one of the leading stations on the Underground Railroad in western Illinois. There were, of course, no tracks associated with this railroad, and words like station, lines, and conductor were clandestine terms that referred to people and places that assisted runaway slaves. Alton was just one of the many border towns through which enslaved people escaped, but it was one of the most active and remains haunted in many ways today thanks to that activity. The Underground Railroad, or the Liberty Line, as it was sometimes called, was a loose national network of abolitionists who illegally aided fugitive slaves in reaching the northern free states or Canada. It started in the late 18th century, operated by the Quakers and other religious groups. It gradually grew into a widespread trail of safe houses that helped enslaved people reach freedom. There was, of course, as mentioned, never an actual railroad, but the system inexplicably gained this name, and the safe houses became stations or depots. The enslaved people were often guided at significant risk along the route by conductors. Most successful Underground Railroad escapes were made from the upper parts of the South, from states like Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. The enslaved people traveled by night and relied on safe houses and isolated farms where they could find shelter. During daylight, the fugitives were concealed in barns, caves, and often elaborate hiding places constructed inside private homes, businesses, and churches. They would be watched over and fed by conductors who would assist them in continuing their journey after nightfall. The Underground Railroad gained legendary status before the Civil War. Still, because of the dangers involved with it, little documentation exists about the location of the stations or even about many of the people involved. We know that lines passed through river towns like Alton, Quincy, Chester, and Cairo, which were all accessible to enslaved people crossing the Mississippi from Missouri. Some swam or used rafts or boats to cross the river. They drove wagons, rode horses, or simply walked, always traveling under the cover of darkness. Major Charles Hunter was one of the best-known conductors of the Underground Railroad in Alton. He often drove his wagon across the countryside with an extra passenger or two concealed beneath blankets or rugs. Other public figures were said to have also been involved, including Benjamin Godfrey, Senator Lyman Trumbull, and many others. Secrecy was essential to the movement's success, both for the runaway slaves and the abolitionists involved. Helping enslaved people escape captivity was dangerous. Many were jailed and punished for their abolitionist work. In fact, in 1841, three Alton men, Alonson Work, James E. Burr, and George Thompson, were arrested in Missouri for attempting to aid enslaved people in their escape. 
They were each sentenced to 12 years in prison for grand larceny. There are believed to have been three primary routes through which escaping enslaved people entered Alton. The first began at the bottom of Henry Street. From there, enslaved people made their way to George Wiggler's apothecary shop located at the present-day site of the Wedge Building in the 600 block of Broadway. Tunnels linked the building to the riverfront and had hidden rooms for concealing the runaways. Another nearby station was the home of Dr. Emil Gulich on the corner of East 4th and Henry Streets. Runaways were then transferred from these stations up the ravine of Shields Branch, a small creek that ran from Hunterstown to Upper Alton, where more stations were located. Many of the stations have been documented, while others remain as rumor and legend. The priest's retreat on Edward Street, torn down in 1963, had several hiding places in its basement. A residence on Judson Street and a Baptist church once located on Broadway were said to have been places where enslaved people could find food and shelter. The Herbal Messenger House on Washington Avenue, the Cartwright House on Jersey Street, and Shirtliff College in Upper Alton were also stations on the Underground Railroad. One of the most famous stations was the Old Rock House at 2705 College Avenue. It remains well known thanks to the fact that the Illinois Anti-Slavery Society held its first organized meeting there. The house was later used as a station on the Underground Railroad with several hiding places in the basement. The second route in Alton began with a series of caves in the bluffs. Conductors then led enslaved people to stations like the Post House on Christian Hill or the Ursuline Convent on Danforth Street. In 1938, construction workers discovered a room under its first floor that had only one entrance through a trap door. The third route in Alton began at the Dimmick House, you know, the guy who looked for Lovejoy's body, on Broadway or 2nd Street, as it was known until 1916. The site is now home to the Second Reading Bookshop. From there, enslaved people were moved to a location on 3rd Street and then to Upper Alton. There were undoubtedly other places in town that were used to harbor runaway slaves, but that location on 3rd Street has become widely known in Alton as both an underground railroad station and as one of the most haunted places in the city. It's known today as the Enos Apartment Building, but for a few years in the mid-19th century, it was a place of safety for runaway slaves. But believe it or not, that wouldn't be the most controversial use of this massive building. It would be what it was used for starting in 1889 that would leave a myriad of hauntings behind. Located on 3rd Street, the apartment building began its existence as the home of Nathaniel Hansen, a wealthy farm implement dealer and abolitionist. During the construction of the home, which overlooked the Alton Riverfront and the Mississippi River from a high bluff, tunnels were added beneath it so that runaway enslaved people could be sheltered there. Although bricked off at one end, the tunnels still extend from beneath the house out underneath 3rd Street. The mansion's foundation is 15 feet below the street's level, with numerous rooms and narrow passages carved out of the limestone bluff. The ornate cupola on the roof of the house was once used as a signal post for escaping slaves from across the river. One light placed in the window was said to have been a signal that all was well, and two lights meant that danger was afoot. The cupola, which towers over the downtown area, could be easily seen from the Missouri side of the river. 
The House saw quite a lot of activity during the busiest years of the Underground Railroad movement, but there are no records to say how many runaways may have passed through the House's clever hiding place. Some believe the fugitives who passed through the House may contribute to the haunting reported here for many years. Tragedies often occurred when the Underground Railroad was in its heyday. Enslaved people were sometimes killed before they made it to freedom. The line was a dangerous place filled with peril. Injuries were common, as were sickness and death. Many places connected to the Underground Railroad have been considered haunted over the years, including this building. The lingering spirits of enslaved people could explain some of the odd things reported here over the years, but not all. Besides that, I believe that most of the ghosts in this place are linked to a very different time in this building's history when scores of people we know actually died within its walls. And they don't just haunt the basement. They haunt everywhere else in this house, too. In 1889, the mansion was purchased by Dr. W.H. Enos, who specialized in the treatment of tuberculosis. He believed that turning the house into a hospital would be beneficial to his patients, thanks to its location on the bluffs above downtown Alton. Tuberculosis was a fatal disease at the time and considered incurable. Still, many doctors believed that patients could extend their lives with plenty of fresh air, of which the house offered plenty thanks to its location on top of that bluff. Well, Dr. Enos went to work, and over the next three years, he added an addition to the right side of the building to be an industrial kitchen, quarters for nurses, and a home for his family. He and his wife Harriet had four sons, Homer, Edward, Lewis, and Ellison, and one daughter, Cordelia, and they made their home at the hospital. He also raised the roof of the building and added a fourth floor. No windows were installed on the new floor. It was meant to be a pavilion-style open area where the patients could breathe all the fresh air they needed to improve their health. Many of them were in such a weakened state by the time they came under Dr. Enos' care that he installed the first elevator in the city to get them to the fourth floor. And by the way, it still works today. Well, as it turned out, fresh air was not much of a treatment for tuberculosis, and many of the patients who came to Alton seeking help died at the Enos Sanatorium. Dr. Enos suffered his own tragedies there as well. His wife Harriet died from heart disease in 1902, and then in 1916, his 19-year-old son Homer unexpectedly died in his sleep. He'd also suffered from heart issues for a few years, but his death at such a young age caused terrible grief for his father and his remaining brothers and sister. But it's very possible that Homer, Harriet, and the many others who died within the walls of the sanatorium have never left. After the hospital was eventually closed, it was remodeled again and turned into an apartment building. It's had many owners and many times that number of tenants over the years. During that time, dozens of them have experienced supernatural happenings in what is probably the most unnerving place for such an experience, their home. My first introduction to the hauntings of the Enos Apartments was when an acquaintance of mine owned the place and introduced me to some of the tenants. Since then, I've spoken to many others, presenting a compelling case for the idea that spirits of the past do linger in this place. The strange happenings reported here have included doors that open and close by themselves, footsteps in apartments, hallways, and staircases when no one is there, lights that turn on and off by themselves, the elevator operating on its own, and even a few cases of tenants waking up at night and seeing a shadowy figure in their apartment. Perhaps most common, though, are the objects that vanish and then show up again in odd places. 
Most of the objects were everyday things like keys, jewelry, books, silverware, and in one case, an entire bottle of wine. This has always been my favorite story about the Enos. A couple I spoke with told me about coming home from work one day with a nice bottle of wine for dinner. While they were in the kitchen cooking, the bottle was left on the dining room table. When the food was ready and they came in to eat, they found that the bottle had vanished. It turned up again three days later, unopened and sitting on the back of the toilet in the bathroom. They had no explanation as to how it could have gotten there. I've heard stories like this many times. Often the tenants who tell me these tales have no idea that someone else in the Enos has told me something very similar. These pranks, because, well, that's what they seem to be, are most common on the house's upper floors, but the lower levels can be pretty unnerving too. A couple who moved into an apartment on a lower floor in the middle 1990s had been living there for only about a month when they heard someone tapping on the door to the basement one night. They opened the door, but the staircase was empty. The eerie knocking continued, happening every few days, and they started to be awakened at night by footsteps in the hallway outside their bedroom. Then lights started turning on and off, the toilet started flushing by itself, and one night a pungent odor filled the house as if an animal had died inside the walls. It only lasted for a few minutes, luckily, and then it was gone. Things finally reached a breaking point when they were startled awake one night by the sound of a man screaming. They said that it came from beneath the floor of their bedroom. They moved out two weeks later. About a month after hearing their story, I spoke with a man who also lived on the lower level of the building a few years earlier. He'd also had some of the same experiences, like the footsteps and the knocking sounds, but never heard the scream. What he heard was even more chilling, a crying and whining sound from below him as if someone was injured. He said he searched the lower basement, but no one was there. And that wasn't the last time I heard about the basement apartments. About two years later, I spoke to a young woman who also lived in that part of the house. She also said she'd often heard footsteps stomping up and down the basement stairs. She always kept the door locked, especially after someone knocked on it several times. But she was always frightened when it occurred. Well, one of the things I remembered about the Enos apartment building was that several years ago, anyone off the street could pretty much just walk into the basement. The door was left unlocked and offered easy access. I mentioned this as a possible solution to what she'd heard, but she quickly shook her head. She would have agreed with me, if not for what happened next. One night when her boyfriend was over, they both heard footsteps on the stairs. When they saw the doorknob start twisting back and forth as if someone was trying to open it, her boyfriend quickly opened the door, expecting to find someone trying to get into the apartment. And there was no one there. The staircase was dark and empty. And that was enough for her. She moved out of the apartment a few weeks later. A decade or so ago, the Enos was purchased by Chris Veloff and her brother Mark Adams. They began an extensive restoration project of the building, working to restore it to its former glory. Chris mentioned at the time that she and her brother had heard rumors about the building being haunted, but had experienced nothing paranormal there for themselves. However, I warned them that perhaps the renovation starting in the house could wake things up again. For some reason, remodeling seems to disturb whatever energy is in a house, and places that were once actively haunted but quieted down often become lively again, and this is exactly what happened at the Enos. It wasn't long before the stories, which had never really gone away, began to increase. They were the familiar ones, 
Lights, sounds, footsteps, items vanishing, and all the other strangeness that have been occurring for years. Some stories, though, stood out more than others. According to one tenant, she'd moved into the building several years earlier and had only been there for three weeks when problems with her upstairs neighbor reached their limit. The neighbor walked around, banging things, and even moved furniture in the middle of the night. One night, she and a friend had come home late and once again heard the banging and thumping and heavy-soled shoes walking back and forth above her head. This went on for an hour or so, and finally, she couldn't take it anymore. She decided to go upstairs and tell him to quiet down. She marched to the upstairs apartment and banged on it heavily with her fist. As she did so, the door silently swung open to reveal a dark, vacant apartment. No one was there. The place was empty. There was no furniture in the apartment and no one who could have been walking around just minutes before. When she inquired about that upstairs tenant the following day, she was told that the place had been empty during the three weeks she had been living there. And soon her apartment was empty too. She moved out and went in search of a less haunted place to live. But of course, this is all. So finding a place that is not haunted in this town can be a little trickier than it might be in other parts of the country. Yeah, no, I'm ready. Okay. Thanks for returning with us to Alton, Illinois, for a special series of podcasts from American Hauntings. Back in season one of the show, we collected some of the most famous hauntings from Alton's history, and now we're back with updates and new stories based on Troy Taylor's new edition of his book, Haunted Alton. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Yep, I still have that in there, don't I? The, yeah, my full name in there is I, I think, think people understand who I am, but for some reason I have first and last name. But we I'm, we got it. We got it. And oh, oh, something I wanted to mention <laughs> yes. just the last time, too, is you yes. said how. Yeah, I post uh, I'll post about the the phantom murders or whatever. My Facebook page and stuff. I can't imagine that anybody that's listening to all these is not following you on Facebook. But if not, you oh. post pretty much something every day. With I do. I, I, post it. I do like um, uh, the, a day in, you know, weird history, I guess, weird yeah. day in history, whatever. But I always tie in stuff that it's anniversaries of that day. This happened on, you know, May 31st or whatever. You know, I, I always try to do that all the time. And um, but yeah, uh, that's I think that's what I meant. I think I said uh, in our, our last episode, I said, oh, we were talking about the, um, you know, the town that dreaded sundown. And I said, oh, it's something I don't remember what the date is, but there was a date. And that, that probably didn't even make sense to people who don't don't follow right. the page. But if you I mean, if you want like more up to date stuff as far as like when anything new is happening, when books are coming out, anything like that, you should follow the Facebook page, even if you hate Facebook like I do. I don't like it, but it's a necessary evil. Yeah. Uh, so I use it and uh, I do post on it every pretty much every day. There's something on there. So, yeah. 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 Thanks for mentioning that. because I didn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. Facebook.com slash author TT because I have yep. to look it up all author the time. Yep. Um, also, the town that dreaded Sundown, that always sounded like <laughs> a vampire thing. I know, me. doesn't it? Yeah. Ex- yeah, it does. It's like uh, 30 days of night. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It's the same kind of title, but 
Um, it's, it's, you know, was referring to the murders and the, what's, what's kind of cool about it is the, well, I mean, if you're like a complete utter fucking horror nerd, um, the, the, the costume or the, the disguise that the killer wore looks pretty much like Jason Voorhees's disguise in Friday the 13th part two, before he started wearing the hockey mask. Where he had the bag, bag over his the head. burlap sack. Yeah, that's that's exactly what the guy is wearing. <laughs> he kind of also looks like the dude from The Strangers too. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So it's it's kind of funny that you see the the parallels there. Uh, so yeah, Ooh. I mean, I don't know that they inspired each other, but that is what the guy was described as wearing. So in Texarkana. So, interesting yeah right and if you don't know what we're talking about you just need to listen to both podcasts yeah, exactly well they probably are they wouldn't be getting this one most likely so right <laughs> uh okay 1837 so i was trying to think of how to like phrase this and you kind of did it a couple of times but i would say people know about elijah p lovejoy and stuff but i don't know if it's most well, people in alton do uh, it's not one of the I mean, most it's famous but one it's of those widely known right? things i know they don't I mean, people that I've met in different places and stuff who don't really know who he was don't realize what a pivotal moment it was when he was murdered. Mm -hmm. and they don't know what it inspired and led to. That's why I kind of wanted to make sure that I got that point across that, you know, a lot of people blame, you know, oh, all the violence was in Kansas and then John Brown and stuff. But really, John Brown, who was a big part of all that violence in Kansas. Um, always said that he was inspired by the death of Elijah Lovejoy. It was like a vengeance trip for this dude. Mm. It was crazier than a shithouse rat. But, right. um, but you know, he had, I mean, he had good ideas in mind, just not exactly the best ways of carrying them out. Uh -huh. Execution. You know, for the time period. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was kind of a, kind of a zealot crazed, a little off the, a little over the bend i don't know you pick a phrase you know yeah. there's uh, plenty of them that fit yes um so yeah uh, but i mean yeah it is important and you know that put alton on a national map not in a good way right you know in the 1830s but i mean we're talking about time period when alton was the largest city in illinois mm -hmm. i mean in in the 1830s was it bigger than st louis still at this point it was it was it was it was doing a lot. It was a, it was thriving in ways that St. Louis was not okay. um, mostly because of the ease of the riverboats for mm -hmm. Alton, as opposed to St. Louis, where it was much tougher than to get boats into St. Louis. And so it made it so that Alton was a, a lot easier, more user friendly. I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it grew faster, you know, it got larger. And so you know, with it being the largest city in Illinois, because when we, you know, when Alton got that penitentiary in 1830, it was the first one in the state. And I mean, Chicago didn't even exist. There weren't even like, there were like a couple of log cabins where Chicago would someday be. It didn't become a city until 1834. And you had to have a hundred residents to vote yourself into a town and they didn't. And it was the first instance of voter fraud in Chicago. <laughs> not the last. Yeah, yeah, not the last for sure, but definitely the first. Um, so they just kind of fudged their numbers and became a town. But that was like 20 years after Alton did, you know, was Dang. so it's it's, um, you know, it, now everything's backward. It's all upside down now because Alton obviously is much smaller. But 
um, yeah, it was a it was an important community at the time. Uh, but still, you know, if you're asking about people on the East Coast or something, they don't know anything about Alton until Lovejoy was murdered there and it made all the papers. But mm -hmm. like I mentioned, it wasn't just the abolitionists who were upset about Lovejoy dying. It was also like normal. I mean, just the everyday average newspapers. Um, people were up in arms, even like in the South, where they hated his politics. But the, the the thing about it was, is that he was, you know, they defended his right uh, as freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And he became the first martyr to the free press in America. Um, the first person who died defending his right to publish his newspaper. Yeah. And so that, again, became a pretty pivotal moment in American history. So, yeah, it's that whole, uh, I don't like what you're saying, but I defend yeah, you. Yeah, right defend you to it, death, you're right to say it. Yeah, same exact thing. Wow. So, so 200 men surround the warehouse. And this this stuff I mostly know from, because- yeah, Sure, we, you guys we, had it in school. Of course, because it's, so, cause it's yeah. so relevant. Right, yeah. right. Um, they talk about three times they put his, uh, toss his printing press into the river. I'm guessing this isn't a thing where like, it's still down there. It was probably just a couple of feet in there and just throw it in and like, let it, I don't, let that it, I don't let know. It sit. <laughs> well, um, everything moves around in the Mississippi so much that even if they threw it in, it was gone a few months later, probably. Oh, so man. just swept on downstream. So if only we could, yeah, if we could find those. Um, yeah. Right. How, how, how big is a printing press in those days? Um, what are we talking about? Good sized. Um, I'm trying to think a uh, best way to describe it um, or to give you, a movie or something that you could refer to. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, I'm sure if you pull up, you know, Google search a printing press, 1830s, mm -hmm. um, you're talking about something that's like the size of at least the hood and part of the interior of a car. I mean, these were big. They were very large printing presses were at the time. Uh, because they had so many moving parts and so many pieces. I mean, when you went to lay out a newspaper, you had to lay out the sheets backward on a tray, what were called printing trays, and you had to lay out all the letters. You had individual letters right. that you had to stick in there, and you had to print your entire paper that way. Uh -huh. originally. And then you soaked it with ink, pressed it on paper. That's how it worked. Um, so you're, that's a that would be a nightmare in my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, there was nothing easy about printing stuff, which is why you know um, books were handwritten for so long. You know, all those old Bibles and stuff you'd see. The sometimes you'll see it in the movies. A, a monk will be sitting around in a you know in a room somewhere writing, ha freehanding the Bible and drawing decorations in it because. You know, no one thought up an idea of until what's it, Gutenberg, I guess, came yeah, along probably. and invented the printing press. And, you know, it just was like, you know, this nightmarish idea of how to make newspapers, man. And yeah, yeah. if you want, oh, you know what? I know a good example. If you've ever watched Deadwood, that series, the HBO series. I'm familiar about, with it, but I haven't watched yeah, it. That's great. But there's a newspaper publisher in that and you see his press. Got know, it. And that gives you an idea of what they used to look like. So. Yeah, it would have taken uh, quite a few guys to bust this thing up and dump it in the river. Yeah, because <laughs> I know? had in my head, I was thinking some kind of assembly line looking thing. But now I'm looking at these images and it looks yeah. like a weird Dr. Seuss machine or yeah, something. I know, right? Right. Um, and I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing since you have to lay the letters out, you um, you just do like 
a hundred of one page at one time yeah, and then yeah. swap it out and a hundred of page yeah, two I, or I, something. Yeah, or I, I believe so. I believe that's how it worked. Um, I, I'm more familiar with ones that were a little more mechanized, you know, once it got into the newspapers and the, you know, in the teens and twenties, I'm, I'm a little more familiar with those, but these are older ones. They, they would have had to probably, I think a lot of papers were, they called them broadsheets. They were just one page. Ah. You know, it was a, a page, you okay. know, and you yeah, just that put everything on one yes. big piece of paper. <laughs> I'm not you setting know. this shit up again. Yeah, there yeah. isn't that much news. Screw it. You know, <laughs> so I mean, because really, I mean, what's news going to be? You know, so-and-so had dinner at, you know, their friend's house. Right. You know, it's some of it's not really news. But well, I'm guessing with a lot of this, too. And correct me if I'm wrong, but just looking at these pictures and knowing what I know about, you know, machinery at that time. It's had to be some heavy ass steel parts oh, yeah. that they were. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they took up like a whole room. I mean, that would your printing press was a whole your entire newspaper office was the printing press. Yeah. Because really, what else did you need? Because it's not like you're sitting over there. You might write taking calls out longhand, <laughs> and then you've got to you've got to lay the paper down and go here, put this into print, you know. And somebody yeah. then has to take everything you've written, and you know, I think probably the 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 possibility of errors was probably quite high oh gosh you know, in some of those early papers you know think about it. it's like yeah we, we <laughs> ran out of ease just flip over the three it'll be right, fine right like, and good. you know in any illustrations you had of course you know there were no cameras so there weren't photographs anyway and they didn't really start using photographs in papers for god till toward late in the 19th century so everything was like you know woodcut I mean, there would be illustrations, but they'd have to cut them into something, you know, just like you see, like people do stamps now, like you. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And except you're carving it into wood or a reverse image, different material, and and then it stamps down into, you know, it goes that piece is cut out and put into the newspaper with all the lettering. So yeah, so crazy. Like, do you think people back then, like, so if you don't know that there's ways it's going to be faster in the future do you think they would be frustrated like we would be now no probably not this this Uh, is it this is how yeah that's 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 all you had i'm sure actually i'm sure it seemed like a great innovation yeah i mean compared to what they had before which was nothing so the fact that you can do anything like that and i think that as time went on by the time you got to the middle 1800s and the later 1800s and people started printing magazines and things you know harper's weekly leslie's illustrated some of those really big time magazines that brought all the news back in those days, you know, you'd get Harper's like during the civil war, it came out every week. And that's how people kept up with what was happening in the war. They got their news once a week, but that was a magazine. So imagine, you know, it's 10, 15, 20 pages of news. Imagine how that must have been this tremendous innovation to people yeah it's a crazy operation probably just kept getting bigger and bigger and more and more of them were made every little town had its own newspaper back in those days because that's how you got your news have you ever seen that tom hanks movie news of the world did you watch that when it came out it's very good if you get a chance that no he travels from town to town and reads the news to people um because it was something that people needed if they didn't have a newspaper in their town, that was the only way they got their news. Oh, it's 2020. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it just came out a couple of years ago, but I, I, I recommend it. It's very good. Uh, I really liked it, but it, it again, gives you an idea of how news traveled back at that time. And, you know, here we're talking about even long before that, because he is a civil war veteran in that movie. So now we're talking about the 1830s and Lovejoy printing a newspaper here and, 
you know, people getting up in arms about the things that he would print and getting upset about it. And then once he's murdered, you know, that murder, the news of the murder spreads throughout the country. But imagine how long it took for things right. to get around. Right. Sure. You know, because, um, again, it's 30 years before the or 25 years before the Civil War. So, you know, there would be more innovations to come after Lovejoy's death. But in that initial time following his death, imagine how slow the news spread. And so people just got madder and madder as time went on, you know, right. the time the news reached, you know, four states away, it had already, everything had already happened. It was long over with, they'd had a grand jury and they brought people in and indicted them and put them on trial and then let them all go free. So now, you know, everybody in Alton is just trying to move past it where people in New York are just finding out about what had gone on. Just and getting mad. You you can never get rid of how angry everybody is, you know, yeah. because it just keeps rolling over, you know. And Matt, yeah, imagine how much faster the news would have spread if they didn't kill him and stop <laughs> tossing a shit into right. the river. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> so just just since this is an Alton-centric, you know, episode, I want yeah. to talk about the warehouse. And you talked about how, you know, now it's just kind of between two grain mills on William mm -hmm. Street. Are we talking like back behind Big Money no, Pub? I can that tell stuff? you exactly where it is. Uh, okay. So if you come down William Street and over on your right is that that monument to the Confederate Penitentiary, which yes. was, isn't yes. located there. It was actually up on the hill back and behind but, it. Right. Okay, but it's right there. And then next to that, there's a building, a small stone limestone building. Yes. Yes. It used to be the office for the Sparks Milling Company. And we'll talk about that. will be a later episode, too. But so just keep walking right across the street. And directly at the foot of William Street, there is a gap there between those grain mills, the, mm -hmm. the towers, the storage towers. Yeah. That empty lot where there's just a little room for a few trucks to park, that's where the warehouse was. Okay. So, yeah, it is back yeah. behind where Big Muddy yeah. used to be at all. Yeah. Okay. okay yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Behind, you know, where Morrison's. Uh, right. Know, more the other yes, side Morrison's of the street, now. a little further down. Yeah. 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 Got it. Uh, so, I, so I, pretty much wrote down like a lot of questions in this and then you'd end up answering them later. So I still <laughs> want to, which is, which is great. Well, and yeah. And then again, this is a revisit of a story that we talked about before, right. just with a little more information and uh, well, probably a lot more information actually. Yes. Uh, and some updates that don't sound quite as bad. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, so you talk about river towns like Alton, Quincy, Chester, Cairo, or whatever you, however you pronounce it, if you're Cairo, Cairo. Uh -huh. I know. All, well, that's how they pronounce it down there. They you know, have to pronounce it that way. They can do it wrong, which we're all well, accessible. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you that's, you know, yeah. Southern Illinois is it's got its own thing going on. So all these towns are accessible to enslaved people crossing from Mississippi to Missouri. The initial question I wrote down was, um, how do you think the Civil War helped shape Alton? It would have been different if it weren't on the river and or the border of Missouri. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about it. I don't think, honestly, yeah. without the history that Alton has because of the river, um, you know, we wouldn't have all the ghost stories we have. Alton would have never have prospered the way that it did. It would have been a tiny little town. And it never would have gotten much bigger. It would have mm -hmm. been Brighton. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. it, it it never really would have been, you know, uh, a big thriving community for years, you know, fighting over the railroads and in the running to be the state capital. And none of those things would have happened if it hadn't have been for the river. And then the Civil War, too, added a lot. I mean, we already had the, you know, the penitentiary was already there and then it was reused during the war. And we'll we'll get to that in a later episode. Mm -hmm. talk about that some more and some other information that's come up about it that I've added to. But, um, you know, 
it was also, um, you know, it was also a military post during the war too, because we were in a very important area right there. I mean, not Strategically, only did we have that, yeah, we had the penitentiary, but we also had this, this river town that, you know, was on the edge of Illinois. We were right across from what was supposed to have been a neutral state during the war, but uh, it wasn't. I mean, Missouri itself, thanks to the governor at the time and a lot of the state officials really went to the Confederacy, but not St. Louis. I mean, St. Louis remained loyal to the Union, so you have that big divide anyway. So with St. Louis being a military post for the Union Army, the rest of the state, you know, being friendly to the Confederate Army and Alton right across the river, which is, you know, still a, a Union post, uh, there was a lot of conflict. And I think that added to everything, too. And then now, we're you know, and then we get to talking about the Underground Railroad and a town like Alton. Um, is even better. I mean, all of those towns that, that I mentioned did have, you know, stations mm -hmm. in them, but Alton was kind of an oddity because of the way the town is built. I mean, it's all built on those bluffs. You know, I mean, the town started off on the floodplain down there in the low part of town, but the more people moved in and they brought their kids and their pigs and their cows and everything else and sloshing around in the mud down there. Everybody thought, well, that's sickly down here. So if I live higher up on the bluff, the air will be better. Not really, but mm -hmm. it's a nice idea. And so they built higher and higher on the bluffs. And then, you know, when you go over to like Christian Hill, which mm -hmm. is, you know, in one section of town, that's where all the rich people went because that's the highest part of town. Mm -hmm. So they wanted the, the best air and built their houses <laughs> up on the hill. So, you know, when you've got all that, you've got all these bluffs, you've got all the caves that are in the limestone. And so Alton really had a leg up on a lot of other places as far as stations went, because it was easy to hide people there. Mm -hmm. you know? And plus we had woods running through the middle of town because some of the bluffs were too back then uh, too steep, uh, too narrow, too jagged to really build on. So you had all like this wooded path. I, I mentioned one of the routes, you know, goes up past um, Hunterstown, which is where the Alton City Cemetery is. That was kind of a separate community that eventually became part of Alton. But there was a creek that ran through there that was all wood. So they'd use the trail along the creek because it was so well hidden. Mm -hmm. So Alton had a lot of advantages when it came to the Underground Railroad. Yeah, it's interesting because I I mean, Alton still has a lot of random woods. You'll still see tons of mm -hmm. deer, you know, in places yeah. where you're like. And a lot of the neighborhoods are, are really divided because yeah. of the terrain, you know, yes. so you have sections where at one time those were actually little towns all their own I, I know i've told you that story before but yeah people yeah. on the river used to call it yankee all town because uh, oh, okay. there were too many towns they they didn't even know which ones were which eventually they all became alton but for a long time there were you know like seven or eight different little towns through what's now alton you know because of the divides and the woods and the you know such an it's such an interesting town and when and you when you think about it like i i'd be curious about the elevation and how things change because you know if you're if you're downtown and you're at the river and everything any if you're unless you're going like a long broadway and stuff anything else goes up it oh, goes yeah. up yeah, yeah. up up, up yeah. until it kind of flattens out at you know henry and union and all that kind of like mm -hmm. and, and eventually kind of plateaus there but yeah you of, get up on top of the bluff right right exactly <laughs> you know? yeah but that's yeah but that's only on one side of town the other side of paisal valley though there's no level 
it's all it's all just up and down over there. Which on part? Christian which, Hill. Oh, okay, by that's Saint all, Peter and Paul. That's and all that. just up and down. I mean, there's just in fact, I mean, Seventh Street. Did you see that article that I Seventh Street steepest. is now officially the steepest brick street in the entire world. Yes, I and I went up that hill in the back of a truck oh one time God. just so because I they the wanted first to do time it. going down it and coming off the top and I I'm not kidding having like a near panic attack when I got to the crest of that hill because I thought Oh my God, there's no road. It's, it's that steep. It's, it's ridiculous. Crazy. It yeah. is. And like, I wonder like, so when it rains ice, those people, I guess, no, just don't, no, just don't no, leave. No, I don't they even, salt you it could, like you they even, third street, but I, even it doesn't walk. matter. You yeah. can't even you can't, walk no. that like and, mm -mm. at that point. It's so Too steep. steep. Yeah. So if you, if you're in Alton just for the conference or anything, like check out, check out seventh street Hill. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's very, random. it was a rumor for a long time. And then there was, I was reading the article and the guy was like a retired engineer or something, had some time on his hands and thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to see if this is for real, Yeah, you know, who was somebody who knew how to do to actually do that. Yeah. And so he did all the calculations and sure enough, it's the steepest one in the world. That is yeah. ridiculous. So again, one of those Alton things. And know. isn't that is that why we still have so many of those bricks too, like brick street stuff for the so the horses could like have well they, they had on? well yeah because you'll find if you look close on some of the brick streets you'll find some of the bricks have been turned on edge so oh, that really? the horses' hooves could kind of hook uh -huh. behind those bricks to pull people up that hill. Because that would have been <laughs> been murder, man. It's just be like so, you take the long way around. If I know, because I mean, you go up sometimes in a car, and you're like, um, "Yeah, we went, <laughs> yeah, we went up in the this, bed this of a truck." Seems scary. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway, yeah, and and that's the thing. I these are the episodes though, Troy, where I don't mind nerding out about Alton so much yeah. because it's such <laughs> yeah. an Alton specific little series. Yeah. Uh, oh, the other question I wanted to ask you is. Uh, and this is asking you things that you cannot know, obviously. But what, what do you think? How do you think it would have been different if Alton had been the capital? I, I that's a good question. Um, I don't think it would have lasted because you know it's like the same reason they chose Vandalia and Kaskaskia. I mean, Vandalia. Yeah. I mean, Kaskaskia made sense because it was really like the first real town. So you know, as a territorial capital, it made sense then because it that's where Illinois started was, you know, right along that western part of the river there um, or the western side of the state right along the river. And that was, you know, the French came there, but they moved it to Vandalia because most of our population was in southern Illinois at the time. But when you're talking about most of the population, <laughs> you're not how, talking how, about that many people. Yeah. You know, so when they got ready to move it, every town wanted to be the capital. You know, everything that was even remotely again there, you know, Chicago wasn't even in the running because it was it really wasn't much of a town at the time. But I mean, towns like Iliopolis, I mean, that's why that town was built, because it was supposed to be the exact center of Illinois. So they wanted to be the capital. Oh. Uh, but Alton was really the the front runner to be the capital. In fact, if you go up College Street, mm -hmm. you'll find a big, well, you'll find a circle. One a of circle. those, you know, what do they call those? Roundabout. Uh, roundabouts. But if you look at the edges, it's not really a circle. It's a big square because they set aside land there to uh -huh. be the state capital. That's where it was supposed to sit, was right. up on top of that hill. And that was, they, they had it ready to roll. I mean, it was ready to go. Uh, but there was a group of uh, lawmakers that they called the Long Nine because these guys were all over six feet tall, and one of them included Abraham Lincoln. 
and they did a lot of questionable shady dealing uh, to get Alton to drop their you know bid and gave them the railroad instead. They said, we'll promise you. And then that's how we ended up with, in Alton with the Chicago and Alton Railroad, because that was the biggest railroad at the time in the state of Illinois. I mean, it was a dominant. In fact, it, it ran, well, it's still railroad tracks now. There's still trains that come through there, but that's now Interstate 55. Mm -hmm. Was Before that, it was Route 66. So that's still a main run from between Chicago and St. Louis. And so Alton got the railroad if they give up the state capital. And that's how it ended up in Springfield. Because, listen, Springfield was a shithole at the time. Nobody could believe they were putting the state capital there. Um, they, they had mud streets through like the 1870s. They didn't even pave the streets. Uh, they had wild pigs that ran loose in the street all the time. Nice. And uh, and politicians, too. So you imagine <laughs> what it was like living there. No, but it really was a horrible place. And so nobody could believe it. But that was the deal that was made. And so Alton, no state capital. Yeah. And if you um, if you go up, if you go up college where Troy's talking about. So there is a, a, well, a concrete circle with a fountain and some trees and stuff. And there are it used to be different even growing up. But now there are, I believe, four different exits you can take, including mm -hmm. the one you're coming up on. And I remember a few years ago. Uh, so you can go kind of right onto I don't know if it's Elm or what it is, or you can keep it. going. There's a hospital. Yeah. You can take mm -hmm. that go that goes down to MLK, or you can take another one that goes more toward Rock Springs uh, Park. Well, that's the one. That's the one you're coming up. But I'm oh, oh, you're, you're okay. I was coming from the other direction. Oh, so. sure, sure, sure. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I, so which is I'm, like 20th Street or something, something like, like that. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. a couple of years ago, I was coming up, and I was coming up college, and I skipped the first exit. And took the second one where you go down to the hospitals on the right and it's broad mm -hmm. daylight. And I saw a man on the sidewalk, fully clothed, urinating onto the sidewalk in the middle of the day. <laughs> and that's where the Capitol was supposed yeah, to be. That been if it tells capital. you what it's like now. Which again is sort of fitting, really. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And just to be on, hey, just to be clear, I'm not talking shit on. I grew up a mile away from that spot. Oh yeah, like, yeah You know, no. I, I came from there, no, but no, it's uh, it's absolutely. definitely different than what they imagined. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, yeah, so you talked about Stephen Douglas proposes a new law to let Kansas and Nebraska vote to become slave states or not. And I wanted to tell people if you are an Alton and you want to see the angriest statue you've ever seen, you can see a statue of Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln having a debate and. Um, I know you know a lot about that. I'm kind of curious about where the debate took place versus where the statues are and how that all shook out. Well, there they had debates. They were both trying to be a senator to Washington, D.C., I mean, for Illinois. And so they had these debates that went all through the state. And then the last one they had was in Alton, where those statues are, uh, which I forget what they call that. I think Lincoln Douglas Square, right? Is yeah, that yeah, they call yeah, it? yeah, yeah. But at the time, that was the back wall of Alton City Hall. And it wasn't finished quite yet, but that's where they set the stage up. And so now today you can go to the exact same spot. That's where it actually happened. The, the obviously city hall is no longer located there. Not at all. But if you look at a lot of the old pictures of Alton, and if you look up the city hall, like old postcards and things, you'll see it. It's right down by the river. That's where it was. And all the railroad tracks came right through what's now downtown Alton. Um, so, but that's where city hall was and that's where the debate was and outside of that. And so that there was plenty of room for all the people, but 
I mean, you'd be angry too if you look over and you're like five foot four or whatever he is, and Lincoln's a foot taller. Right. <laughs> you know. He's like, you got to wear the hat too. Come on, man. You're uh, yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so wait, City Hall. So are are you talking the old one that was across the street? Are you talking where Lighthouse Sounds used to be, or like? Yeah, where, that's where City Hall was. Where, where Lighthouse, Lighthouse Sounds? Sounds and all that used to be. Okay, yeah, okay. Right there. That's gotcha. where City Hall was. Okay, yeah, because I mean that originally. That is like backyard of right yeah, there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where Troy and I recorded the first Very four first episodes. Podcast. Yeah. yeah. Of, of, of this. Um, okay. Uh, Bleeding Kansas. Is that something we talked about before? We're going to get into, or did you just? Was no. It just it's kind of just. A little, I mentioned it just because it was part of the you know the lead up into you know people being angry and and divided against slavery. It was you know they let them vote and you know the they were trying to get people to vote you know to either allow slavery or not. And so a lot of people were coming over from Missouri trying to influence the vote. And a lot of people were in Kansas trying to do the opposite. And there was a lot of bloodshed and mm -hmm. fighting. That was probably the most violent thing that had happened before John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. And then, of course, the Civil War. Right. We used to talk about um, uh, John Brown's, well, uh, I guess not verbal quote but handed a, the hangman a note that i john brown am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood which sounds awesome until the last few years and now it sounds terrifying to uh, yeah me. no kidding now it's not yeah now it seems real again so yes uh so okay lovejoy he starts the st louis observer rumors began to spread throughout the city of abolitionists were plotting to encourage a slave rebellion in st louis free people of color were watched closely with both suspicion and fear like it has to already be terrifying to be a slave, but then this shit's about to drop, maybe. And yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, is, is I'm, I'm either excited or I'm terrified. Yeah, I know. Like, it's hard to say, right? What's gonna happen? Uh Lovejoy goes after the Catholic Church, noting that anyone who owned slaves or turned a blind eye to slavery was guilty of the most grievous sins and um a grievous sins and would be condemned to damnation. And I know people like thought this was really, really crazy, but can you imagine an organization saying, if you do this, you're going to be condemned to damnation forever? Because that yeah, is but terrifying. I know, but you got to remember it wasn't an organization, it was just one guy. I know, printing I know, his, I know, I know, you know, I know. his newspaper in his garage, essentially, but it got a lot of attention because sure. tension was high, you know, <laughs> it's, like, it's, so. like the, it's like, we're the Catholic Church, we can say that, but yeah, you yeah, can't but you say can't, that. yeah. Uh, Francis McIntosh is a chained to a tree and set on fire after uh, killing a police officer after a whole a whole thing. Lovejoy finds him still chained to the tree. His head's missing. Like, I think sometimes we like people you, you talk about the Civil War and things and, and people say like, uh, you know, uh, a one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic or whatever. It's like mm -hmm. you got to remember, like the brutal shit that really happened in these oh, places yeah, sure. and things like this is very, very real. And it's like, yes, it was a little while ago, but still fresh enough that like, of course, this is crazy shit that people are still going to be, have feelings about Lovejoy's 35 when he died. I'm almost 35. <laughs> I can't imagine anything that I feel so passionately about that. I would keep trying and trying and trying for my life. Know, so right? this guy seems like a badass, <laughs> you know? Um, and then we get to talk about his ghost a yeah. little bit. Yeah, a little bit of ghost. And I, there. I wonder um, when they, okay, so they finally, you know, ID his grave and, you know, his ghost is laid to rest and stuff. Like, do, do you, 
do you think they just kind of did that just to be like, okay, like let's just put this to rest? Do you think they it was actually legit? I don't know if there's any way to really know. I, I don't know that that the reason they I don't think the reason they did it had anything to do with a ghost story. I mean, I just think oh, that was sure. a story that was told and you know they wanted to find his grave so that they could, you know, do something to to honor yeah, him a little yeah. better. I mean, he essentially had just been thrown in a hole somewhere. I mean, do you think it was really to his grave? It. What's that? Do you think it was really his grave? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, you know, they they went to all the trouble to track down somebody who actually knew where it was because no one else remembered, you know, so they had to find somebody who could tell them where it was. And I think that that was done purposely. I mean, I, I really think that they wanted to do something to honor him after, you know, time had passed, um, you know, and now there's that big monument sitting mm-hmm. on top of the hill. You know, and it's nowhere near his actual grave, but it is state of Illinois property there at the front of the cemetery. So, yeah. 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 And if, again, if you're in Alton and you haven't been here before, go check it out. There's a, a great thing there. Uh, we call the whisper wall. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, you basically you sit on one end and have somebody sit on the other end and you can lean up against the stone and you can whisper. And it just it's just physics it travels, just travels all the way around, travels around. Cool. You can hear on the other side. Yeah. And it's a it's a great monument. And I mean, you can see it pretty far oh, yeah. away coming it's, across the river yeah, yeah it's you gotta spot be it. one of it's the tallest things in alton yeah right um and yeah it's it's amazing and of course you know people would think they see his ghost everywhere because yeah if i was him i'd probably haunt but <laughs> yeah. th- but it does seem like it his ghost was just seemed like a residual type of haunt oh yeah instead of, yeah i think it was just some energy left over and then you know they put up yeah. his grave and you can be poetic about it and say oh you know they've done this to to honor him so now his ghost is finally at rest imagine probably just faded away anyway and that right. made a good ending to the story that'd be my guess so i kind of would like if for the people that killed him if he went to like their great great grandchildren and just <laughs> erased their college papers right when they were about to save you know like to be the modern day kind of way he would do it um underground railroad we talked about it uh, we've talked about it yeah we've talked about it a lot yeah but it's other episodes too it's like you said with the caves and the way alton's laid out it's such an amazing thing when you get to see some of these places or they Mm -hmm. discover these tunnels even they discover one not not too long not too long ago yeah um and you you, didn't you get interviewed about that or get to talk about it a little bit or something yeah because it had come up quite a bit especially well with the the enos building i talked about it a lot over the years and so when that popped up yeah they did talk to me about that too Yes. And yeah, uh, well, one, one thing, well, two things I'll say before we jump to Enos real quick. Um, You said 1841, three Alton men are arrested in Missouri for attempting to aid enslaved people in their escape. They each sentenced to 12 years in prison for grand larceny. Grand larceny essentially because they are helping steal property, right? Right, exactly. Like yeah, because Jesus slaves Christ. were considered property in Missouri at the time. And so it was, and, you know, forgive the comparison, but it was like going over and stealing three cars. Yeah. You know, I mean. That's how the law I mean, looked at it. Yeah, that's that is how the law looked at it. So that's kind of what it equated to at the time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Troy, you went into some spots about Alton and the Underground Railroad and stuff. And there's tons of pictures out there and things like that. But hey, if any of our listeners have things that um, haven't been made public or have, you know, we have this old photo album, but never really like scanned it in or whatever, like mm-hmm. send us anything. Send us oh, like, sure, everything. Yeah, if, if be you're... interested to see other places, you know, yeah, if there's they pop up all the time. You know, um, and a lot of them are older and they're buildings that are gone now, but still stuff pops up every once in a while. People come and tell me about a place they know of or, you know, they has been found in a, you know, 175 year old house in Alton, you know. Yeah. 
So it stuff's around still. Yeah. Still to be found. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what's that uh what's that movie that we just watched not so long ago with the scars guard guy? Um and Justin Long. And oh, the, um, uh, Barbarian. Barbarian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, not those kind of tunnels. If you've got one of those in your house, we're not coming to look at it. So. Yeah, yeah. you should probably also move, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and if you find it, yeah, get out. Yes. Get out now. <laughs> uh, but the, the Enos building, ghost, tuberculosis, so many things there. I love the story about the couple with the bottle of wine. Oh, I know. It's I like to think favorite. that it's a friendly prank, but also that the um, the ghost is probably like, guys, you've had enough for today. I'm just going to hide <laughs> yeah. this bottle. You can find it later. Oh, yeah. Um, and you mentioned how when people wanted to uh, do renovations on the Enos building, how we can kind of wake things up. We've seen this time and time again. Oh, yeah. It's activity, a common thing. Activity yeah. picks back up. Um, I guess you're just... <sighs> disturbing the energy changing things yeah i mean even if you even if you're like i don't you know necessarily believe in ghosts i don't think people's personalities hang behind let's just say that's what you believe you know uh but you even even someone who doesn't believe in any kind of ghost could at least see the logic behind disturbing the energy of a place yeah you know what i mean um just the way it's been for all this time. And then you come in and you start tearing stuff up and tearing things down and moving things around and you disturb the atmosphere. You know, I yeah. mean, you can look at that as an, as a more scientifically than ghosts even. And, and it, it makes sense, you yeah. know, that it could start to kind of, you know, bring back something that was laying dormant, you know, as far as sure. just energy goes. Well, it's like, you know, you start fracking and then Godzilla comes yeah, out of see, nowhere, exactly. right? Yeah, out of nowhere. And then there you go. You sure. throw a couple of atomic bombs and the next thing you know, you know, Gojira's attacking <laughs> uh, Hong Kong or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the last thing I'll mention is um my I think my favorite story about this. And I've, I've had a couple friends that live there. Uh, my friend Casey lived there and she had some some fun stories about it. But the 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 loud but empty apartment above yeah. is oh, probably yeah. the best one and it's it such a great one. like movie kind of story it's just like yeah you, you hear all this banging in a, a party or crazy stuff going on and you're like i've had it and you open the door and then <laughs> nothing nothing yeah. gosh um that's all i got man uh okay. anything else that i missed or that you think we should hit on no okay well guys thanks for listening uh to okay. another episode uh, of the podcast, um, you know, in between. So you got something every week. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you're getting two shows today. So um, two of them. we have intruded in your life double the amount that we normally do. So <laughs> um, if you uh, enjoyed it, spread the word. We'd appreciate it. And uh, we will see you next time around for our next regular episode coming up next week. So Yes. And again, please send me pictures of Underground Railroad stuff if it's not yeah, things that are yeah. out there. I'd no love to see. Or, yeah, me too. I'd love to see it also. That'd, That'd be, be awesome. All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. We hope you enjoyed this return to the Alton podcast, as I have, and will be with us as we present 10 episodes of the history, hauntings, legends, and lore from one of the most haunted small towns in America, according to one magazine. Thanks for well, listening. we have continued to, you know, I Prove think it. reinforce that. Fact. That's true. Yeah. So. Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, sometimes there's a reason for marketing property. That's right. That can't be true. So thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. And see you later. See you later. Hell yeah. All right. Okay. So I got to do some editing. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.